think initially the path wasn't clear. I did try to do some advocacy here in the state. Nearly got myself fired a couple of times and then started reading everything that was published on this issue and decided that the best path forward was to create the evidence base that would ultimately become the force to change health policy in our state. Zero transplantation is an extremely exciting possibility for our future because it offers the possibility that there could be an unlimited supply of organs. Welcome to the first episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convolute, but never dilute. I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai, and I'm joined by three nephrons who will introduce themselves. I'm Eleanor Mannon. I'm a six-year MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Georgia. I am Sam Kent. I'm a transplant nephrology fellow at Johns Hopkins. Hi, I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. We are joined today by two esteemed guests. The topic of our conversation on the Nephron segment is ethics and transplantation. I'll have both of our guests introduce themselves. We'll start with Dr. Lilia Cervantes. Hi, I'm Lilia Cervantes. I'm an internal medicine hospitalist in Colorado. And Dr. Peter Reese. Hi, this is Peter Reese. I'm a transplant nephrologist at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Welcome, both of you. We're really happy to have you here. I want to start with Dr. Cervantes. Can you please tell us a little bit about your story and how you got interested in transplantation? Sure. I'm an internal medicine hospitalist in Colorado and uh, was providing care for the majority of the undocumented immigrants that come to our hospital once a week when they're in need of emergency dialysis. And it was morally distressing to take care of this population because they literally had to be at the brink of death each week to be dialyzed. And I uh, became very close friends with one of my patients, Hilda. She had two little boys and she preemptively decided to withdraw from dialysis because it was distressing for her to see her boys suffer on a weekly basis. And um, she passed away on Mother's Day in 2014. And after she passed away, I um, was determined to change health policy in our state and slowly throughout the country so that undocumented immigrants wouldn't have to suffer so much. And so it's been sort of a stepwise approach. Um, initially, we changed access to standard dialysis. Um, this went into effect February 1st, 2019, and um, then expanded access to home dialysis just this year. And now we're working on transplant. Hearing this story always inspires me. If you were a trainee or someone in the field who's seeing something like this, how do you make that sort of leap to say, I'm going to do something about this? And how did that happen with you? What was your first step and how did you take that? It's a great question, Matt. Honestly, I think initially the path wasn't clear. I did try to do some advocacy here in the state. Nearly got myself fired a couple of times and uh, then started reading everything that was published on this issue and decided that the best path forward was to create the evidence base that would ultimately become the force to change health policy in our state. And it, you know, it wasn't, sometimes when I tell the story, it seems like a very linear path, the way we sort of built solidarity around this with patients and stakeholders and nonprofit community-based organizations. But in retrospect, I think it took a lot of perseverance and determination to change this. 
it was too morally distressing to continue to provide this kind of care to this community. Every time I came in for a shift, um, you know, Hilda was gone and every patient that was like Hilda brought me to tears. And so I just felt like I needed to either follow my moral compass and change this or, um, you know, continue to feel the consistent burnout that we all felt in providing this type of care. I think what you've done to not only make change is incredible, but I think for me, even awareness about this issue, I did not have. I did my training in New York State, and I did not realize that it was such a privilege to have Medicaid coverage for patients that require dialysis and emergency-only HD. I did not even know what that meant as a term. Um, And so I think, you know, we have a long way to go uh, just across the board with many of these things. Thank you for raising our awareness to this issue. And, um, you know, just chatting with our trainees today in our NEF Madness conference, and we have our very exciting inequities region. And for all of our fellows, I think many of them, it was also their first time hearing about this because we, you know, we don't face that in you know, the community that we practice in. Yeah, it's been really exciting, honestly, to publish about this and to share on social media because clinicians from other states have reached out and asked, how do I change this? How can I begin the same process that you started in Colorado? And it has been exciting, honestly, to see this change have a domino effect throughout the country and to see other clinicians excited about advocacy and upstream structural drivers of health inequities. So it's, it's been an awesome journey so far. You know, I'm going to pivot to Dr. Weiss because I've had a conversation with him before uh, in many ways, has inspired me to take up research. I know you told me uh, when I met you that at the early stages of, of your training, I don't think you were that much into research, but then you completely pivoted and became interested in it and take, took a major step in, in many facets of kidney transplantation. I know I've heard the story, but I'd love for other trainees and nephrologists to hear how you got into all these um, facets of transplantation. Sure. There are many people in medicine who have incredible quantitative abilities and vast memories. Um, I met them all in medical school. And I was not one of them. I was a cultural anthropology major, and I wasn't very interested in scientific research at all. I was really interested in primary care. I was very interested in community service. That was the main, probably the reason I got into medical school was because I'd done a lot of community service. So I went through medical school. I was on the primary care track in my residency. And then I did nephrology because I figured nephrology was really wonderful. There's tons of primary care nephrology, but then you had like subspecialty skills and a little something extra. And then one day I started encountering transplant and I was like, wow, like I'm very interested in literature and stories. And I thought transplant was like this, like little kindling, you know, in your imagination. It's like, oh, so what we're going to do in clinic today is we're going to talk about how, is it right? Is it safe for, you know, one living person to give their kidney to another? I'd never encountered anything like that in medicine. I thought that was just fantastic. And um, the other thing I really liked is, I think what's wonderful about dialysis is this relationship that you have with your patients through their whole life. And that really is true in transplant too. You know, you have this, I don't think intimacy is the wrong word, but this like deep affection for your patients. They associate you with this wonderful thing that's happened. And, um, you know, a lot of what we do in medicine is like, we're, we're changing the slope of decline. Unfortunately, we're all on the decline. And, you know, you're hoping for your patients to just make it a little slower. But with transplant, it's kind of exciting because you, 
a lot of times patients jump up a few rungs and then you adjust their slope of decline. But, but that ability to be involved in a process that gives them a lot of hope is really wonderful. So I didn't care at all about research essentially until I got excited about transplant. And then once I saw that this was an opportunity that I was really wanting to give to more people, then I said, oh, okay, I care about ethics. I care about rationing. I care about living donation. I care about clinical trials that are high risk, high yield. I care about decision-making because it was all about something that I wanted to see happen. I found many of my colleagues, they probably knew they wanted to do research when they were winning the high school science fair, but I was reading novels. I wasn't interested in that at all when I was 16. So anyway, I think there are different roads and depending on how you're wired. I think that's a nice segue into what we really wanted to get into in this podcast was ethics of transplantations. And so to prepare for this podcast, I Googled ethics and what it means and says here that moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. And so either of you can take this question, what do you think about when you think about ethics within particularly kidney transplantation? Maybe we'll start with Peter since uh, you're a former chair, if I read that correctly, of the ethics committee of UNOS. A lot of the issues that, that we were dealing with in UNOS had to do with rationing of organs. Um, and, you know, transplant is a situation, uh, until Zeno really takes off, of absolute scarcity. So the distinction I would make is that we can make more dialysis machines, we can make more nephrologists, we can make more ICU beds most of the time. And so there's resource allocation, but the pool is not fixed. But in transplant, this is true rationing where the pool is fixed. And so this is often the easiest issue for people to think about first when they think about ethics and transplant, which is if I'm going to ration, how I'm going to do it. And many of the things that we had to deal with later applied to some of these COVID-19 catastrophes, which is when you have this absolute scarcity with COVID-19 temporary, with transplant enduring, how do you balance equity and, and efficiency? And how do you deal with um, things like autonomy at the bedside when you're offering organs? So I think that's one of the, the classic issues. And then there's tons of equity issues that I know Lilia will have a lot to say about. And then when you think about living donation, which was one of the ethical problems that I think is just incredible because it's so unique. You literally can't find a parallel anywhere in medicine. There's this big tension between autonomy. The person comes in and says, it's my body. I want to give a kidney. And you have to say to them, I have this duty to protect you. And I can't just let anyone donate a kidney. If I'm necessary to carry that out, then I'm going to have responsibility. If the harm is too big for me, even if it's okay for you. So I think those are probably the first two ethical problems in transplant that I, you know, I ran into and they always require refinement and fresh thinking. So I think to that point, what current barriers exist for equitable transplantation? And this can also be posed as equitable access to management of chronic kidney disease or really any chronic disease. Lee, would it be okay to jump in on uh, rationing really quick? Yeah, of course. Please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a thought. Thanks. I might go just a little bit nerdy, but okay. with respect to rationing, it's really interesting because I think one of the most important studies from 2017, you guys are probably familiar with it. It was Jenny Shen's study in AJKD. She basically compared outcomes between undocumented and documented patients that had received a kidney transplant. 
and her primary outcome was loss of transplant. And it was really interesting because what she found was that almost 40% of undocumented immigrants had received a living kidney donor transplant. And so it's just interesting when you think about Shaning, I think her study, in addition to two other more cross-sectional studies, uh, Linden and Baru, demonstrated that undocumented immigrants are young and they tend to have a living kidney donor. And then the other thing I was going to mention about rationing that's also interesting is that there are 16 states in the country that allow undocumented immigrants to sign up for a U.S. driver's license. And in allowing them to do so, they can actually preemptively sign up to be donors. And what's interesting is that in, in California, I think they passed a legislation in 2015 allowing undocumented immigrants to sign up for a U.S. driver's license. And in 2016, Donate Life California reported a 30% increase in people who signed up to be organ donors, which they attributed to this large undocumented immigrant community that was signing up. I should have clarified earlier that when we talk about rationing, clearly we're talking about rationing deceased donor organs. Donor organs pose a really interesting different set of questions because living donor organs are almost always a private gift between two individuals. So the equity frame in living donation is really complicated because unless someone comes forward as a non-directed donor and says, you transplant system decide where my kidney's going to go, this is a private exchange, I'm giving to my daughter, I'm giving to my mother, et cetera. But like broadly speaking, when we think about equity and transplant, I think that there's kind of, think about it as two steps. One is, do the people who need the transplant get offered transplant, educated about transplant? Do they make it to the center and do they get their testing? And there's huge inequities there. And we have a big problem because we don't really have a healthcare system in the United States. We have a confederacy of systems and things going. And so we know that there are really big inequities in access to transplant. This was something that Amaka and Nina and I wrote about recently, where if you look at who makes it into the system to preemptive transplant, the inequities are massive and they really haven't changed. Then the rationing takes place among those who are as official candidates in a transplant center. And most of what we've seen is that the worst inequities of all take place around people not making into the system, not getting on the list. Once they're on the list, the allocation system of rationing, at least it's subject to a lot of scrutiny. It's fairly transparent. We can have very legitimate, strong arguments about whether or not the order of who gets the next transplant is okay, but at least we know how it works. It's data that are shared. One of the other things I would say just from the, per, from, in terms of nephrology is a great place in transplant to study ethics is that within our confederacy of disorganized healthcare in the United States. We enumerate every single end-stage renal disease patient, and we enumerate every waitlisting event, every transplant event, and every donor event, deceased or living. So it's one of the few places you can actually count. And so I think it's drawn the attention of people interested in racial inequities and other forms of inequity, because at least you can count stuff. Now, in some ways, this is good. In some ways, it's bad. There's this adage of the drunk guy who's wandering around, and he's looking for his keys under the lamp. And the policeman comes up and says, you know, hey, Mr. Drunk Guy, what are you doing? So I'm looking for my keys. Well, where'd you drop them? Over there somewhere. Well, why are you looking under the lamp? Well, that's where the light is. Hey, Mr. Drunk Guy, what are you doing? So I'm looking for my keys. Where'd you drop them? Over there somewhere. Why are you looking under the lamp? That's where the light is. So the drunk guy is looking for his keys under the lamp because it's the only place there's any light. And that's a little bit kind of what happens with a lot of inequity research is 
people study the stuff that's been counted. So they study renal disease. I think the access to care problems are every bit as bad with, you know, cabbage or access to premier cancer therapy or whatever, but they don't have the same large and, you know, thorough data sets that we have. I don't know if this has been said before, the Confederacy of Unorganized Healthcare. I just Googled it, can't find anything on it. I think I've used Confederacy before for its negative connotations. And then the second <laughs> thing, how do we shine the light on those uh, areas? And maybe that's what uh, Lily did with you know trying to understand undocumented health. How do we ensure that we do shine the light and figure out what are these problems are? It's tricky because I think oftentimes talking about access to care for undocumented immigrants can be uncomfortable um, because it pushes people to really think about um, their own beliefs about who deserves access to care and who doesn't deserve access to care. It brings up this ethics question of rationing organs. Do we provide undocumented immigrants with organs? So it can make people feel very uncomfortable. And it's important to shed a light on all these issues because it forces us to have these uncomfortable conversations. Uh, look, I, I think I read in one of your recent papers that there is a limit that transplant centers have and if that they have a certain percentage of non-U.S. citizen transplant recipients. They may be audited or that may be a flag. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The OPTN policy might have triggered an audit if a transplant center had over 10% of organs transplanted to non-U.S. citizens, whether they were residents or non-residents. But then that changed in 1994, and they made it less than 5%. And then they did away with it altogether in 2012. So now they look at the immigration status for um, any individual who donates or receives an organ or is waitlisted. Yeah, I served on some of the committees that looked at these issues when I was on the ethics committee, I believe that I don't believe there were any penalties associated with how many non-citizens you transplanted. And the, at least what I was told was that the main concern with this issue really had to do with the proverbial oligarch who flies over from some other country, gets their liver transplant, leaves behind a donated building, and then returns to their home country. The idea was that in, in principle, like our transplant system should serve the needs of the community that is donating the organs. And the issue is that, and so I think the undocumented immigrants, if they were disfavored by this, we're going to count up the number. I think that wasn't the intent of the reviews. If you look at the allocation system law, the final rule and the implementing regulations, it doesn't really address anything about citizen status or things like that. And I think a lot of the, I mean, I am completely with you, Lilia, just that as a physician, our duty should be to the patient in front of us. And I think a lot of the concerns on the transplant center level, which at least where I've dealt with them, it can be very diverse depending on the center you're in, is that you want the patient to be able to support the transplant afterward, um, meaning that they can pay for their medicines, they can make it to their appointments and things like that. And so to me, getting Medicaid or any sort of insurance is a really, it's just wonderful that you've done that sort of advocacy and it's heartbreaking for a great transplant candidate not to be able to get a transplant. It's terrible. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot these days, I know we talked about ethics, we talked about 
equity, but um, scientific innovation. Transplant is at the forefront of, in, in a way, we're overcoming nature. Nature says, don't have one organ, you can live, you know, and we're at the forefront of all that. But how do we balance scientific innovation with also equity, making sure we're taking care of the basics, making sure the organs are getting to the right people and getting in a timely fashion, yet still moving forward and say, looking at even lofty goals such as immune tolerance. You know, I know we might even touch upon xenotransplantation and things like that. So it's that balance that always I think about how, do, how would we look after that? I think that concerns about equity and respect for persons have been with a, you know, very, very loud voices raising concerns about those issues since the dawn of transplant. If you look at some sort of histories of transplant and narratives about the early days written by people like Bob Veach, or more recently by Josh Mesrich in his recent book, even when Starzl was you know, pioneering the first liver transplants, people were, were super concerned. Is this fair? Is it safe? The definition of brain death, many people think that sort of category of someone who's human, but not a person anymore, really came about partially because of pressure around organ donation. So transplant is run by very flawed humans, like every other human enterprise. But I think there have been, there's been a recognition since the dawn of the field that um, there's a lot of potential for wonder and a lot of potential for violation of key ethical principles like equity. I would say for the undocumented, the greatest challenges I see, even in a state where there is access to benefits for transplant, is simple things like lack of access to language interpreters. Um, most undocumented immigrants report limited English proficiency, and it's hard to find a language interpreter. Many of them also have low health literacy. There are a lot of challenges around mistrust and discrimination, and so they might be, you know, they might not be as trusting if someone's trying to have a conversation about living kidney donation. And so those are some of the, I think, remediable challenges that we can begin to address, especially in those states where undocumented do have benefits for transplant. Financial toxicity is a very big problem with our healthcare system. It makes my blood boil when I think about it. Um, if you want to read someone who has this idea, it's this guy, Peter Eubel, who's at Duke, he's just swinging this idea and advanced this notion that I think will take hold a little bit more that when we talk to patients about a therapy, we might want to think about all the toxicity it could have in other parts of their lives if the financial burden is too high. Personally, I was not trained in a way that makes me feel like I'm very skilled in that, but I see the need. Medical debt is a huge issue. I don't think it's really intrinsic to transplant, but transplant suffers from it. And if you think about why this should not be a big issue for kidney transplant in a logical world, um, we would all point to the really robust evidence that kidney transplants actually cost saving. So I just want to emphasize that again, there are very few therapies in medicine that are cost saving. For instance, Screening for common diseases that we think of all the time as like really good population level interventions, often not cost saving, often cost effective. Cost saving means not only do I give you this therapy versus the standard therapy, but I save money for the system. So kidney transplant compared to chronic dialysis makes you live longer, improves your quality of life and costs less. 
So if we were in a, a sort of rationally designed healthcare system, you would create every possible incentive for every person to get a kidney transplant, because at the end of the day, you'll have more money left over for other priorities that you might want to spend on. So there's a lot of backwards realities that we live in where we might either de-incentivize transplant or make it more burdensome for patients or cause them to lose their transplant because of financial toxicity. So it's a really big deal. So if you look at it, you have the rationally designed healthcare system, which is the utopia that we want to get to, and the confederacy of unorganized healthcare, which is where we currently stand. And this is just very naive take on this. I see the incentive of transplantation of why centers do it is because there is a big profit for the actual surgery in the confederacy of unorganized healthcare that we're currently in. How can we shift it to where we actually do think about the big picture here? I think transplant also um, accomplishes other things besides making money for the hospital. I think it often operates as a flagship for the hospital system in the sense that for better or worse, people get excited about transformative therapies. I think transplant does have this other purpose and that it, it attracts people to the center, both patients and practitioners. It inspires people, you know, these stories about 60 person kidney transplant chains, it tends to, you know, generate excitement. And um, so I think the surgery is lucrative, but honestly, lung transplant is like way, way more lucrative. Um, liver transplants way, way more lucrative. I think kidney transplant also exists because it aligns with our purpose. I think also I would add that getting back to sort of the undocumented immigrant perspective on transplant, there's also sort of the societal argument and that this is a community that is for the most part young. If you look at the different studies on undocumented with kidney failure, they tend to be young, 45 to 46. Um, they tend to have low Charleston comorbidity index. They have less comorbidities overall. And so from the societal perspective, when you provide this community with a kidney transplant, they're able to rejoin the workforce, and most of them do. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. One of the things that you'll notice about living donor transplant is that the younger you are, the more likely you are to get a kidney transplant. If you're over 60, your odds of getting a kidney, odds ratio for getting a kidney transplant is 30% of what it is if you're 25. So young people are just more appealing to donors and tend to have, I think, you know, strong social connections that really matter when it comes to getting a donation. If you're a young individual who's received a living donor transplant, it's great that you've received it. But what are some of the challenges now that these individuals that have received it really face? Well, um, they will need immunosuppression lifelong. And fortunately, Congress passed a bill that will cover immunosuppression lifelong for all solid organ transplant recipients. What we don't know yet is what the implementing regulations will look like. I think we should see the regulations this year, but until this is implemented, it was kind of like saying, well, your new organ is like a brand new Porsche, but we might or might not ever change the oil on it. We might or might not give you access to the basic medications that you need. By the way, all the basic medications that you need after year one, they've been around for 25 years. Mycophenolate is barely better than azathioprine. Azathioprine is a 45-year-old drug. Calcineurin inhibitors have been with us for decades. Nothing new or fresh here. When I was a first-year fellow, um, my first in-training exam, 
there was a question that said, you know, there's a patient with a kidney transplant. How long will their insurance cover their medications? And I was like, this has to be a joke. Like, how is this a question? And it was like one year, two year, three year, four year. Um, I guess I can say that now without getting in trouble from the in-training exam committee. It's good to see that question's finally gone. When I learned that in residency as well, I just couldn't believe that all the way into fellowship and what, 10 years on the faculty is still like that. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. As someone who's been in the field for a while, how do you deal with that? Everyone in transplant has had this like really awful experience of someone coming in and you know, haven't taken their medicines and their kidney's not working and we can't rescue it. We've all seen the patient who, um, often what happens is they're under financial strain, they're embarrassed, too embarrassed to call the center. They start taking their medicines every other day and they don't really know they're rejecting. And then by the time it's gone on long enough, often they're filled with shame and they feel bad about what's happened and their health literacy is often low. The last topic we wanted to chat about briefly here was emerging news about xenotransplantation, some of it in peer-reviewed journals, some of it not. And so I wanted to hear both of your thoughts about how do we move forward with this? What are your thoughts about this? And the burning question everyone's been asking is, how do we design potential clinical trials that are coming in the future? And how do we enroll patients without really targeting a vulnerable populations? Xenotransplantation is an extremely exciting possibility for our future because it offers the possibility that there could be an unlimited supply of organs. Now, I want to disclose something, which is that I'm an unpaid ethics advisor for a company called eGenesis. So I don't have any stock. I don't take any money or meals from them. But they're working on this problem, which others are too, which is who's our first patient going to be? As a professional aside, like one thing that will come up for you in your life if you're doing ethics is to decide, will I let myself be in, in the room, the company, or will I just stay outside the room? And I just decided for this that I want it to be in the room because I want them to have ethicists in the room. But long story short, what has happened so far is that there are companies that have genetically engineered organs. And what they've done is they've knocked out antigens, are known to cause rejection because the human immune system recognizes them as pig antigens. And they've knocked in the antigens as well. The other thing that they've knocked out is retroviruses. And these are universally known as PERBs because it's a porcine endogenous retrovirus. They had these organs and they were, they were fretting about how do we design a clinical trial that the FDA will go for. And in the midst of this, some of the surgical teams, NYU and the University of Alabama said, well, we can get a consenting family of a brain dead person, someone who's, they think that person is beyond hope in terms of repairing their neurological injury. Could we transplant the organs into those dead humans? and see what happens, see if there's hyperacute rejection. So they've done this at New York University, and they've done it at the University of Alabama. And a lot of excitement about this, but also, in my mind, a little bit of well-placed anxiety because the teams have often gone straight to the media. So we know a lot about these experiments in brain-dead humans from what we've read in the New York Times and the Washington Post. So then in the midst of all this, I think around maybe January, at the University of Maryland, they took a patient who had been rejected for a deceased donor heart transplant because of a history of non-adherence in the past. So they said, you're not a candidate for a human heart transplant. 
again, this has only been published in newspapers, so I can only tell you what journalists have told me. So there wasn't any peer review. They offered that person a pig heart. And he was, I think, extremely ill. And he agreed. So they did a pig heart transplant. Apparently there was some ethics review or oversight, but I, I haven't seen anything else about it. They did a victory lap, says amazing miracle hero. And then this gentleman apparently didn't have hyperacute rejection and he died last week or something like that, 10 days ago, something like that. So I don't think he left the hospital and this was granted under an emergency authorization. So there wasn't in a clinical trial, there was no DSMB oversight. There wasn't a protocol that was published and reviewed. I think that was exciting, but not the way I think that we'll, you know, sort of get knowledge in a way that will be systematic and trustworthy. So I think these companies are now in the space, one's called eGenesis, one's called Think United Therapeutics. Again, I don't have any financial relationships with any of them. I think there's a company in China and they're in the process of trying to develop trials where probably the way it will go is they'll do maybe one patient and then they'll have to follow them for six months and they'll be allowed to do another patient. So that would be slow and probably really expensive and very stressful for a company trying to stay in business. But I have a feeling that that's how it'll happen. I think it's been a challenge, you know, when we see patients in the pre-transplant evaluation process um, in New York City, the wait time for a deceased donor kidney can be up to a decade. It's getting a little bit better now with the recent allocation changes, but still a significant amount of time on dialysis. And particularly with preemptive patients, I mean, that's it's just kind of heartbreaking every time we tell them how long the wait time is. And now regularly in our clinic, we have patients asking us about this as a real possibility. I saw this in the New York Times. Why can't you provide that to me? And it is very challenging or has been for us to have these conversations amidst explaining everything else. And, you know, Lily, you mentioned some of the barriers with, you know, having to have interpreters. And um, one of the clinics that I go to is in Astoria, or in a, in a patient panel of 12 of them, we have maybe seven to 10 different languages. And so to try to now add this on is really uh, almost becoming another barrier because it's pulling away from what we really are trying to talk about. Um, also, you know, in the background of this guarded excitement that I guess we feel right now in, in transplantation. Do you have a profile in mind of a patient who you would be willing to talk to about this? I've thought about this, and I think the one phenotype that comes to mind is somebody that would be listed for compassionate transplantation, so has exhausted vascular access option, has no other alternative other than transplantation. Outside of that, it's really hard for me to think about somebody who I think is ethically appropriate for this kind of experimentation. I have to give a lot of kudos to University of Alabama, Birmingham, who published their paper the same day of their press release, which is what we need. And they did it the right way. We talked about that in FJC, and it was really interesting. Samira, it's going to be hard for us to go with patients who have exhausted vascular access because they may have problems immediately. Like they may be hard to even draw their blood that may be unrelated to the xenotransplant itself. If I met a patient who was on dialysis, had a projected 10-year waiting time, was over the age of 60, and I sometimes think about it as two axes. The one axis is how much do you loathe dialysis? You score high on that metric. And there's another metric, which is how open are you to risk to get benefit? And you score high on that. 
I think you might be reasonable because, you know, a 60 year old on dialysis in Philadelphia, New York city, is probably going to have an approximately 5% death risk per year. And we know that their health is going to deteriorate on dialysis steadily too. So, you know, that certainty of 10 years of health deterioration and a pretty good probability of death in that time. If they, you know, if they're very well-informed, we're well-informed means that I accept and I've been probed and I understand that the risks are not known, I think would be a reasonable person to enroll. I'd never encourage them, to your point, but I'd be willing to talk to them about it and consider it. Yeah, I think it'll be just, we'll have to be careful with who is signing up, I guess, to do it and not really getting the person that has the worst access to healthcare, worst access to transplant, and it's just kind of doing this as a, because there's nothing else. But I think I agree with you if there's informed consent and they understand the risk, which I don't know how you can really understand the risk of this. I don't think we fully understand what it is, but it's a interesting area. So, you know, equity is right back there. We, we have to be really careful when we think about who enrolls in a clinical trial and, and what the oversight is. It's also making me think about young undocumented immigrants that are on the dialysis shifts here in New York City that cannot get access to transplantation. Are they going to be trying to, you know, reach for this, um, which would be suboptimal for them? So I think a lot of questions to answer. You can imagine a protocol that says, well, we're not going to accept Spanish-speaking patients for this trial because we don't think that the infrastructure exists to follow these patients closely through Spanish language. So they're excluded. You could also see it going in the opposite direction, where a lot of patients who enroll in the trial seem like they're socially vulnerable. And then it looks like maybe this is a trial that was exploiting people. I think people designing and carrying out these trials need to be nervous about criticisms that could come from different directions here. For me, I'd like them the access to be as open as it can feasibly be. But I think the education system as well as it can should really try to accommodate people with low health literacy who can be very sophisticated people they just didn't have access to education i guess last question to close for both of you is that after this conversation with you know touching on what we know about xena transplantation transplantation access and equity do you think that xena transplantation assuming it becomes mainstream will make transplant more equitable or um, enhance the inequities that already exist in this field? Oh man, that's tough. I can start. I mean, right now, there's no federal mandate to subsidize transplant for undocumented immigrants. And so I think from my perspective, that's where we need to start. EMTALA, um, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, excludes transplant. And that's why there's only you know a handful of states that are able to provide transplant for patients and it's because they use state funds. And so I think, you know, as we consider trials and inclusion of undocumented immigrants in these trials, I think we have to ask ourselves, once these trials are over, will they have access to the necessary benefits for transplant? And um, from my perspective, I think we need to have more evidence, perhaps in the undocumented community um, demonstrating the inequities, demonstrating the need to provide benefits for this group. And so, yeah, I, I guess I could see disparities widening at this point until we um, fix some of the policy issues. 
I agree with that. And I think we can look at this as an opportunity to kind of demand that equity be a major consideration as the transplant comes forward. One thing about the United Network for Organ Sharing is that it does not apply to xenotransplant. That's a human organ regulated enterprise. And that's just the way that regulation was written and how we interpret it. So, you know, one thing that, again, I think has been so valuable about end stage kidney disease is that we've been able to know what's happening. We can count everything up. So one argument that I've made is that maybe now we should have a registry of these xenotransplants, but what we need is we need UNOS to be expanded in its oversight so that all xenotransplants need to be reported. Now, transplants into dead people might not be reported because the brain dead are not considered persons under the law. But when they're transplanted into living humans, then I think it would be good if they were reported. I don't think UNOS is up to the task right now of regulating xenotransplant because nobody knows what quality is yet. But I think requiring that these events be reported in a standardized way would be good. It would be more sunshine on the issue. I think people like us can keep insisting that new therapies are only good insofar as you know, they benefit the people who need them in a fair way. Thank you both so much. This was an incredibly enlightening and educational and I think also thought-provoking conversation. And we wanted to leave our listeners with something a little bit uh, lighter. So um, Lily and uh, Peter, if you could both share with us one thing outside of medicine that brings you joy. So Lily... One thing, I have two little girls that I absolutely adore, and they bring me joy every day. They're 11 and 14, and they are so much fun. We go on so many wild adventures together, so two. (laughs) All right, and Peter? I had been a bad language student in college, and I learned to speak French again. And um, that was just fun to learn something that connected me to other people and made me feel really humble because I have a terrible accent. And just open my mind to all the great stuff that's happening in countries other than the one I live in. So speaking French badly gives me joy. So are you going to say something for us? Bowie? Don't know what it means, but sounded good. (laughs) So we have reached the end of the Nephron segment. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to submit your Neph Madness brackets by March 31st at nephmadness.com. 